out of the box. Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI. Big ups to Stephen Ferris. Always a pleasure to hear his lovely dulcet tones in the morning. And if you want to check out any of the tracks he played, of course, you can find them on the FBI radio website under the programs and playlist section. And um, today, today's going to be a fun show because through the streets of Newtown and much further abroad, there are quite a few familiar faces on the walls. Um, I don't know how to describe it, the kind of curvy, semi-cubist faces within colourful, abstract bodies. It kind of varies. So Daniel O'Toole is the artist behind these paintings. You may know him better as Ears, and we at FBI like his work so much that we gave him the Smack Award for Best Visual Artist. And Daniel also creates stunning photographic works, brings his unique kind of street art to the canvas, and plays several instruments, and makes beats, and has been making music videos lately. What a polymath. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> quite an introduction. Ridiculous. I mean, it's quite, quite a list of talents you have there. And uh, you you founded a monthly event with other beat makers called uh, Free the Beats. That's and it, yeah. Yeah, so um, we actually have some of those compilations in the FBI library. They're really good stuff. And you can find them, is it free online? That's right, yeah. It's the, that was the concept. It's all free free downloads mm-hmm. of um, local beat makers trying to give a platform to people that make music in the bedroom and don't know where to put it. So, okay, so that's that's why it's free the beats. Yeah, to, that was the ethos yeah. was to give a platform to myself and friends that d- were making music for many years but had never really released anything and didn't have like a label or an outlet to push it. So it was like we'll create one for ourselves, I guess. And yeah, that's the idea with the event as well, just extending on that, giving a giving a platform for people to get experience with performing and give them a deadline and push them a bit. So. Nice. Yeah. And so you do kind of a limited run of physical copies. How does that work? Well, we used to. We did um, limited edition handmade kind of copies of the CD up until volume 10. And then after 10, we just stopped doing it because really it wasn't popular enough. There were a few hardcore fans that bought it and would always order it on mail order, but it just wasn't enough. And we we kind of realised like as time went on, it was enough of an entity online that the downloads were really the thing to focus on. And now we're collaborating with artists to design the digital artwork for each one. So the next one is like volume 13. It's like a future concept. So getting people to make music from the future and inspired by the futurist concepts. And then Adam Paquette is a friend of mine who's a concept artist and an amazing oil painter from kind of a traditional school of Italian painting is, is his influences. And uh, he's going to come up with a concept of the future for the artwork for that so the old artwork's really fun though i mean i saw some of the pictures online there was astroturf yeah it started pretty diy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was whatever i could get from reverse garbage pretty much oh that's excellent yeah. that's really funny my, my boyfriend works at reverse garbage oh, cool. and he he wrote the um an fbi flog yeah. plug for the um for the, for the free the beats thing yeah, yeah cool thoroughly enjoyed it awesome. all right so we've got a track to take first called river titan River mm-hmm. Titan. Yeah, featuring Nick Cassie on vocals. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Um, yeah, uh, River Titan was pretty much the first solid collaboration me and Nick Cassie had done together. We'd been playing, jamming and writing a few ideas, but that was the first really dedicated track where we saw weeks of workshopping lyrics and, and he helped me even with just like the composition and writing the tune. And Yeah, it was so much fun to collaborate with. I've got a lot of belief in Nick Cassie as an artist and what he does. I love his music, so I felt very privileged to work with, um, with someone like Nick. 
And this is off volume 12 of Free the Beats, which you can um, download from freethebeats.bandcamp.com. For free. For free. (laughs) (laughs) So you're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. And my guest today is Iz, a.k.a. Daniel O'Toole. Oh, 
on FBI 94.5. Great track there called River Titan by Ears featuring, what was the guy's name again? Nick Cassie. Nick Cassie. On vocals. Fantastic. Yeah. He's got a beautiful voice. How did you meet he Nick does. Cassie? How did I meet Nick Cassie? That's a good question. I think Nick Cassie just always was in, <laughs> in the creative world. Yeah, we've got a lot of common friends. Um, probably met him through Neil Tompkins' Bird Hat, I think. And that sort so of they're group. also artists? I'm also friend, become friends with his sister, Ness, from mm-hmm. the Double Shadows, Ness Cassie, who's also an amazing um, singer. They're a Sydney band? Double Shadows, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, and they're just, yeah, I guess they're a musical family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're a musical guy. So, I mean, your ears also, when you're making music, same as when you're making art. So yeah, same name. Could I ask you why ears? Yeah, yeah, sure. I get asked that. Um, basically, I, I came up with a name at a point in life where I felt like I was sort of putting music aside to focus on visual art um, for reasons of economy. I was making some money out of painting and pleasantly surprised by that reality I found myself in. So I thought I'll, I'll have to pursue this and... Music for so long had only ever drained my money and I'd spent so much money on records and equipment and and loved producing, but it just wasn't realistic to continue pouring all my income into it and not getting anything back. So I I put it aside for quite a few years before I could really come back to it. So you say you were pleasantly surprised by being able to make money from art. Of course. I think it's always surprising to me when I hear that there's, you know, Mm. someone that makes they're all of their living from art. So when when was it that you were first finding out that you could make a buck and, and exist off? Yeah, it, all, it all happened pretty quickly in like 2008. Mm-hmm. So I'd left art school the year, like like 2007, I sort of left after doing a year of art school and then I was working in Sappho Books in Glebe, um, washing dishes. And then I kind of fell into this busking thing through a friend I'd met, Syke, who was, you know, I'd heard about doing cardboard paintings on the street. So art busking, so painting live yeah painting live and uh some of them pre-prepared i guess at home but we'd spend sort of friday night collecting up cardboard and painting background colors and sort of doing preparation work and then just head up there to king street with a shopping trolley full of art materials and spend the day um with big drop sheets laid out just making cardboard paintings and giving them to the public for free so the money came from donations and we just had big jars out with like donation you know free art donations appreciated kind of thing written on bits of cardboard and was that strange for people who were you know trying yeah, to sure. donate like how how did you kind of how did people decide how much to pay um based on what they could afford and and how they felt about the work what they what value they placed on it which i thought was really nice way to do it, it was really interesting as a social experiment some people would you know really generous and would give you fifty dollars or a hundred dollars for one little piece and then Mm -hmm. others would give you two dollars or fifty cents or something so it was really cool to see it kind of balanced out actually and the average donation for a piece ended up being about seven dollars i realized after doing it for months and months and yeah you know i'd do about a hundred paintings in a day so you know you work it out it's pretty good seven times a hundred yeah so I'm going to quit my job and start getting good at art and do that instead yeah it was a time and a place it didn't it didn't sort of stay that lucrative after a few months, after four months, we kind of knew that it was time to wind it up. Probably because you sold a piece of artwork to everyone in Newtown. Everyone had one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I still hear it all the time. People say, oh, well, my my friend's got one of your cardboard paintings. You know, they're still out there, I guess. So we did thousands. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I guess, I mean, you're already a big name, but one day you might find all of those popping up on eBay or something. Yeah, so maybe. you never know. So, like, back to your music, you're kind of, I guess you described yourself or someone described you, I don't know, it was the internet when I saw it, um, as an analogue purist. 
What do you? Oh, what does yeah. that kind of mean? Yeah, musically? I'm pretty obsessed with with analog processes and and sounds. I, I guess what it means is I try to keep everything in um, hardware as much as possible. So I do use a laptop, but a lot of my sounds don't come from laptop instruments. I don't really use soft synths. I use uh, analog vintage synths, and I collect those. So um, I put a lot of money into that and building up a sound library, which is vinyl based as well. So I'm using like an old Akai S2000 sampler. I'm using, yeah, I'm using tape machines to process sounds. I'm using like an SH101 and a Juno 6. Are these things um, hard to come across? Uh, you know, a little bit. Like they're out there on eBay and Gumtree. You've just got to keep looking and, and you learn a lot about what they're worth and uh, what, you know, which models to buy. And I think the advice I got early on from Gusto from Hermitude was, was kind of like, you should get a Juno. They're great, you know. And I was like, oh, well, which Juno do I get? And he said the Juno 6 is the best sounding one because it sounds more analog than the others. And I mean, I got a lot of respect for, for Hermitude. So I thought, well, if, if Gusto said that the Juno 6 is good, I'm going to get one of those. So that, that was kind of where I started. I bought a Juno 6 and just fell in love with with analog synthesizers from there and, and kept buying some, some other bits and pieces. And, and now my collection's a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, where and, do you um, keep it all? At the moment, it's all just stored in a, in a big room uh, below my painting studio in Leichhardt. But yeah, it's, nice. I've moved studios a few times recently and that's a problem, figuring out mm. where, to, where to have it all set up and how to work. I'm still trying to figure that out, whether it's better to work at home in the bedroom or in a studio, you know, elsewhere. Mm. So. And what, in that case, don't you like about digital? I mean, what's your aversion to digital sounds? I'm not, then? I have no aversion to digital. I think, um, I think the combination, actually, of using both is great. And the contrast between the kind of sonic ca- characteristics is a, is a really beautiful thing to play with. Um, I just um, I feel like there's a feeling and a lot of soul in in real instruments and in analog synthesizers that is musical and you don't get out of um, software instruments as easily and it seems to require a lot more heavy processing when you're using like mm-hmm. a plug-in synth to get the sound feeling like it fits in the track and has presence and is warm and um, yeah I mean I'm into that kind of distortion sort of rounded sound and and like textural detail and it's just harder to get that authenticity in in a digital process as the sort of source you know for yeah the that's really nice so. um actually one of one of my favorite bands the weaker thens i remember seeing them recording and they they actually put lots of woolen blankets over there and so when they're recording they actually try to make things sound warm Muffly, by yeah, using warm great. things that's so really yeah cool. they're gonna tuck them in Cute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We got a track to take from Psych Harmonic Three One Three, I think. Cyclotron, it's Cyclotron, called. Cyclotron, yeah. Hey, why do you like this track? Um, yeah, just really like the sound of the bass in it. It's it's like a pretty tight little bass line, sort of um, tight rhythmic kind of thing. I guess it's gated or something. And then yeah, it's like a heavy, simple track. Really effective ideas. The melodies are really kind of simple but but strong. And it's got a great vocoder in it. You know, I think I just think Mark Pritchard's an amazing producer and. Um, this album, I just keep, I just keep coming back to Harmonic Three One Three and listening to, to this stuff. So I, yeah, I just thought it was a good one to, good one to play. If anyone hasn't heard of it, they should have. I think it's a solid album. Anything Mark Pritchard touches turns to gold. So Very Harmonic Three One Three on FBI ninety four point five. My guest today is Ears, aka Daniel O'Toole. I don't know. I don't know how. Should I just say Ears <laughs> or should I say Daniel O'Toole? Which one's better? Ears is fine. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> All right.
Harmonic 313, a track called Cyclotron for you on Out of the Box, FBI 94.5. Brought in by my guest today is, and uh, you, you said before you got into a finance degree, but you left about after a year. So what made you leave? Um, I think I was just unsettled and, and wanting to do um, a little bit more of what I'd gotten into with the street art thing while I was studying. So it's sort of during that year of art school that I really got into it and started uh, meeting people down in Melbourne that were a part of the scene and traveling there and I started building that those connections and was just really excited about other projects I guess that I had on the boil so mm-hmm. wanted to take time and, and focus on those things. Um, one of them was a magazine called Oh Really which I started with Max Berry another artist that I met who was at Kofa at the time and then yeah that kind of ended up like a gallery called Oh Really Gallery which we ran for almost three years in Newtown. As as someone who really always have want, has wanted to start a magazine, I'm sure there's lots of other people like that in Sydney. Would you recommend it? Is it hard to start a magazine, or is it fairly uh, straightforward? Yeah, it's definitely hard. Yeah, I don't really recommend it personally. I mean, <laughs> running. Yeah, what what we found was it's just hugely expensive, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of business involved in uh, trying to negotiate the money side of it to get the printing done, getting quotes. Um, Finding a way that's ethical to do it's really tricky. Printing in Australia is expensive. Mm. We printed in China for one of them, and it was it was yeah quite an intense process. Trying to find people that sponsor you and support what you're doing and advertising a magazine's really tricky as well. Um, we felt pretty deflated by it. I think it was a very natural shift to start the gallery because the magazine was was like not necessarily working in an organic and easily progressive way. So. So you packed it up just because it was... Uh, we didn't really pack it up. We slowed it down and I shifted see. our energy into the gallery. We still were we were still doing the magazine while we while we had the gallery, but we just did less of it. Gallery's kind of a living magazine then. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's just another another platform, isn't it? Another yeah. space to show the work that we liked. So do you, do you kind of think that art needs an education or training or anything like that? I mean, you left after one year of uni, um, like art school, I guess. So would you say you missed out on anything or yeah of course i mean every every sort of decision like that um comes with consequences for sure yeah Yeah. and i think about going back and studying again i think the really exciting thing about studying in an institution is all the people you meet and the other artists that are there the like minds that you you encounter and the art history the sense of sort of perspective and clarity on what's come before is really important to fuel your you know future sort of projects and Mm. understand your place um, yeah, in that historical context. So I think that's the thing I crave more of is like a better understanding of um, of all the isms throughout history and art and knowing, you know, why everything happened. And I, I feel like no matter what, how much you read and what you learn about that, it's almost impossible to ever really understand all of it and get a, you know, there's sort of no objective truth on yeah. on um, on that whole, the, the depth of that history. But I definitely would love to learn more about it, yeah. Where is, like, as an artist, where do you kind of sit with all of the isms? Do you, you know, expressionism um, or... I guess modernism is a really modern, big yeah. um, reference for my work. Um, the sort of, like you said, cubist ideas that come into that fragmentation of form and looking at the intersecting kind of contour lines in the face is is like a bit of a Picasso reference that people jump on pretty quickly. And, yeah, I, I do relate to that. I love... I loved the abstract expressionists and the modernists and I, I look at that stuff but then I'm also um, influenced by a lot of other forms and I guess that's where like being a multidisciplinary artist comes into it and looking at sound and music and the relationships between my painting and what I'm doing with music is kind of a 
an extension on yeah i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of references i couldn't say that there's one yeah main yeah it kind of seems like, like you got a similar style across several platforms yeah i think that's the interesting thing is when you try your hand at something else and you can see a cohesive thread between the the different aspects of your process yeah. it's like oh, okay so there is some there's something in there that i seem to want to keep doing i wonder why where that comes from or what it is and you i think you get like you gain um, more information and more clarity about that thread as you as you explore more avenues so it's like a healthy healthy thing to be diverse because it's scary because you're trying new things and you may fail at them but but that's kind of half the fun is the new challenge uh, feeds into the the things that you do already know and the yeah. disciplines you're comfortable with and it's really interesting how a visual can translate into a sound like I used to go with a friend of mine called Matt to a gallery in, in Guayamere and we'd go there and look at artworks and try to match music to it do you ever do that do you kind of like try to match the music you're listening to with the art you're either creating or looking at when i'm painting yeah um i definitely feel like the music i'm listening to in the studio has an impact on the way that i paint and Mm -hmm. what and what i'm doing what i'm working with but often also i choose the music that suits the mood i'm in in terms of painting or what i'm already working on so it's not necessarily always the music that's you know, kind of directing the, the visual work. Yeah, but what about painting as dance? Painting as dance? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting concept, actually. I, I was contacted recently by a guy who's doing a lot of uh, research into the relationship between dance, movement, and drawing. I taught a workshop. Uh, it was kind of my first experimental drawing class in Melbourne recently with the workshop guys. And it was, yeah, it was that idea, like playing with developing the impulse and using the movement in the body as a response to music. So I did a lot of stuff where I played different types of music to see how people would what kind of marks they felt represented that sound and how they could like allow their body to um, influence the drawing and it was hard for people they felt very I think self-conscious about you know like dancing in a drawing class was out of context for them there was one lady who was an art teacher herself who really cut loose and was just like she was really swaying and grooving around and her, her drawings were really great you know they looked really lucid and free and there's no right or wrong way to do it but I guess if there is a wrong way it's to not try and some people were just sort of, sort of a little held back so yeah. it was great though to see by the end of the class everyone really free up and kind of get into the the idea of developing that impulse can you think of any examples of like a certain type of music or a certain artist or whatever and how that might affect how things look visually like you know if you're listening to jazz or something would that make things like squigglier um a certain type of artist I think this is like a weird reference, but what comes to mind is that, that Pollock film that Ed Harris directed where, I mean, and this is obviously not like reality, this is a film, but I loved the kind of relationship in that film between the, the score and what was going on on screen. And there were a lot of scenes where, yeah, it was jazz and I'm not sure whether Jackson Pollock actually painted to jazz or whether that was made up, but I really liked that idea of the kind of frenetic, crazy, drunken, you know, like hypnosis of creating this bizarre painting that kind of was almost a reflection of his own insanity but using this music that had sort of a similar energy and was like chaotic and vibrant and fun and and um you know endless almost in its like sort of bebop scalic rhythms so yeah I thought that was an interesting I kind of come back to that thought a lot actually when I'm painting that that film had a big impact on me and I loved the relationship between the score and and what was going on visually it felt very um synesthetic you're listening to FBI 94.5 and it's out of the box, so this is where we get a guest who does something interesting and we get to know them a bit more through their music. I mean, you've, you've got a track is called Bending Moment with you today. So who's this by? So this guy um, is 
Himuro Yoshiteru, who I discovered recently. He's on Cosmopolyphonic is the label, I think. And That's a cool name. <laughs> yeah, um, which I, I just discovered when I was recently in Japan and I was kind of emailing people back home about like, what do I, what do, I do here for music? Where do I find like, you know, gigs and what's going on? And, and sort of through that, I got directed to some labels and of, um, you know, music made in Japan and I found this this guy and I just fell in love with it I really loved it and bought his album so I think it's really interesting um sounds his sound palette's really kind of unique I felt like he's really pushed um that sound design experimental aspect of of creating a palette and working with it and they're, they're pretty sort of heavy pumping beats so I think I think it's pretty interesting Thank you. 
through their music. Out of the box. track brought in by my guest today is it's a uh, mouse on mars the beach stop was that one good pick interesting thank you interesting <laughs> kind of track it's a weird one yeah yeah kind of frenetic um and psychotic i guess would be the ways i describe that one yeah. and um so could can we talk about sydney's art culture because i guess you have a pretty good insight into it much better than i would um how do we compare to other kind of Western major cities? Are we pretty liberal with having art on the walls, you know? 
I think so. I think like Sydney's been known as a bit of a clean city by comparison to Melbourne and there's been that little bit of kind of struggle and, you know, obviously Melbourne's street art scene is, you know, huge and there's a lot going on there and Sydney's councils have definitely been a little bit more militant about painting over murals and I've certainly had uh, quite a few murals painted over by councils, some of them commissioned Oh my God. Um, paid for jobs and stuff. So yeah, that's that's a bit of a struggle for us sometimes, and a bit disheartening when your work gets yeah um, flattened by the by the buff. But especially if someone's but paid for that mural to be done, yeah, is, is that it's does that mean that their right to that sometimes, work is overruled? Sometimes it seems to be at the discretion of the the guy in the orange jacket, and that's kind of the problem because they don't know necessarily what what should stay and what should go. Yeah. So yeah, it's like you need to put a little post-it note. <laughs> this is legal yeah i mean it it gets bureaucratic and it's about having the right da stuff processed and i just think that's a little bit more stringent in sydney than Mm. some other cities i've been to where where the street art's probably a bit more in your face yeah is it fairly easy to start doing a public mural like do you usually you know go go to a spot here that you know someone wants a, a work done there and just put it straight up or do you actually have to go through those processes of actually asking council or getting da's done or anything I'm not heaps into the DA thing. I generally go door knocking and just ask people, hey, can I paint your house or your wall? Yeah. Or, I mean, that's how I started out. I guess now I'm getting asked. Um, it's more people kind of contacting me and saying, you know, would you like to do this do this wall? And it's become a job for me as well. So, so do you reckon the tables have turned in terms of um, you starting by asking people if you can go you know, paint on their wall yeah, and now people are just asking you more? I think that's how it starts, you know, like people... Yeah people cut their teeth by working for free in, in a lot of creative industries to try and get their name out there. And then once it's sort of established in some way, uh, you know, maybe people will come to you and say, hey, I saw that thing that you did or I heard that track you made. Can you can you work with me on this project? And once they're coming to you, then you've got a little bit more leverage to negotiate actually getting paid for what you're doing. So, yeah, yeah that's how it starts. And it's it's great fun, you know. I still kind of have fun painting walls. They're not all paid. Some of them, are, some of them are free and for funsies. For fun, yeah. Is it is it a really different feeling, um, painting a wall to painting a canvas? Yeah, definitely. Like it's you've got time and different materials at your disposal in the studio. So, I have a, it's a whole different headspace for me. I I don't really use spray paint indoors in the studio. I'm using like acrylics or oils, charcoal, things yeah, would, like that. Would it be dangerous to use spray paints? Is that kind of a thing? It's using pretty them toxic. Indoors? Yeah. yeah. I've, I'm feeling the effects of, you know, 15 years of using spray paint these days and a bit more sensitive to the fumes. So I'm really? I'm actually starting to wear like um, goggles when I paint because apparently you absorb more through your eyeballs than through your mouth. And I and I notice that I feel sick after painting, even where, when I wear a mask and my eyes get stingy and sore. So yeah, it's like, it's really, <laughs> it's pretty full on that you got to wear like gloves and goggles and a mask. But yeah, it's pretty toxic wow. stuff. And if it's your job and you're using it all the time, then you actually have to start Wearing like a full suit, up. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So you're just wearing some Zogs goggles. Although I did a performance, you know, like a live art thing in Melbourne, and I just felt like I couldn't wear the goggles because people were just going to feel like it's too, it's oh, too fair alien. Enough. You know, it's yeah. too alien. I guess it would be kind of. I mean, if you made it a bit more performative and had one of those like classic huge, you know, elephant trunk. Yeah, that'd be um, so hard World to work in though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably impractical. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, it would look cool. It would look cool. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Maybe we can make a bit more of a functional one of those happen. <laughs> so are your friends also creative? Are you in like a big community of artists in Sydney or is it a fairly yeah. like lone wolf pursuit? Yeah, no, no. I'm definitely surrounded by like a lot of amazing artists. I work out of a studio called Higher Ground in uh, Leichhardt and feel really lucky with the 
the group that's in there and all the you know inspiration I get from their energy and what they're doing. Any other um, names we'd know? Um, yeah, probably. Um, so it's like Tom Person, Max Berry, Beastman, Numskull, Fibs. Um, it was Bennett. He's moved to Berlin, and Mark Olsweiler was there with us. It was Ness Cassie, Mia Nakazawa, uh, Bird Hat. Wow, lots yeah, of people lots in one of space. People. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great. It's a really you know there's a hive of activity going on and um, really exciting to kind of watch everyone growing over the years. Yeah, do you think it's yeah. it's like better to actually be surrounded by artists as an artist, or do you kind of think that like solitude's a good thing? I think everyone's different. Some people thrive in solitude, and others need a community. Um, I like both. I think the community does really great things for me, and having people around while I'm working inspires and inspires me and drives me to make work in a different way but also I think sometimes when I'm in on my own I can get into a headspace and a zone which is pretty unique because I'm I'm totally unin- uninhibited and I can kind of go into the crazy zone and talk, <laughs> talk to myself and sing to myself and dance and do whatever I need to do and not feel like anyone's watching. That's really interesting because you yeah. seem like quite a quite a normal reserved person I'm getting this completely <laughs> other image I'm not, in my I'm not so normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe it's the fumes. It could be the fumes. I might have terp sprain already. <laughs> hope not. All right, we're going to try to take from slugabed. Probably not the most uh, beautiful word I've ever heard. Slugabed. Mm, yeah. Gross. Fat tune, though. <laughs> yeah, you're going to like the bass in this one. All right, ultra heat. Turn up your subs. On FBI 94.5. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
hope you had some decent speakers going for that one what a large tune and that was Slugger bed with ultra heat treated and brought in by my guest today is whose artworks you probably have seen on the streets of newtown and wider sydney in melbourne probably most cities i don't even know um they're the kind of curvy semi-cubist personality filled painted portraits and uh, he won the smack award for best visual artist a while ago for those uh and Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna be really annoying ears, and I'm gonna quote you to you. So, <laughs> in 2010, you said something along the lines of Sydney needs a cultural explosion, and that there's like you know a lot of people who desire to make it happen, but we just haven't had that creative orgasm yet. And four years have passed. Would you say that we've had a creative orgasm yet in Sydney? I don't know. Did you feel it? I I don't know. I can't tell. I think if you don't know whether you've had the orgasm, it hasn't happened yet, but. I think Sydney's <laughs> improved a lot. I think things are going really well for Sydney. The small bar licensing laws changing was a massive change for the landscape. And yeah, it feels it feels like people are getting uh, more motivated and excited as a community. I see like there's a really big group of kind of young emerging street artists that are like pushing their stuff, which is pretty cool for me to see because we were a pretty small collective when, when uh, it started for me back in, yeah, sort of 2007. I guess there were like maybe 20... 20 guys that yeah. kind of all knew each other. Are there any particularly promising artists that you've seen emerging lately? Um, yeah, lots. I think um, I think Skulk and, and... I knew you were going to say that. And Mike Watt yeah. are really great guys and what I love what they're doing. Um, Bird Hat's not really emerging, but kind of is, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's already really on a pretty high level and, and still emerging as well, I guess. I think he's doing amazing stuff. Um, I like Joe 42's stuff as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, there's lots of people around. Doing, doing awesome stuff. And so the, the creative orgasm, I think, is just maybe so long and drawn out that it's become our natural state. Maybe that's that right. That would be ideal. <laughs> Eternal <laughs> orgasm. All right. Um, so 
I mean, you were in Mongolia recently. When did you come back? Um, I was only there for like a month. So I went to um, Japan with mm -hmm. a friend of mine, Gawa, who's a, an artist based in Newtown. We went to Japan for six days and then Mongolia for four weeks and then Hong Kong on the way back. And yeah, so I've been back for a few months now. Cool. And yeah. what took you there? Um, mainly I've had an interest in like the history of um, Chinggis Khan and Mongolia as a country and just think they're really amazing people and was fascinated to like see a place where people live um, nomadically off the land with just animals and their family. I think that's a really like beautiful idea and to see the Gobi Desert as this um, really like precious expanse of wilderness that still exists like relatively untouched by um, you know modern mining and everything it's starting to become mined now and I don't think it will last forever you know it's a really great time to see the Gobi Desert before things change and who knows what will happen yeah, so the way uh, of life is changing pretty rapidly yeah, yeah. And it's it's valuable land sitting mm. right next to China and it's um you know who knows where that will lead but I was lucky to have a friend Gawa who would take me and um, show me the the country he's from and so I got to visit his hometown and experience Nadam festival which, which is like is, traditional yeah. archery horse uh, horse racing and wrestling horse wrestling did you do any did you do any wrestling when you were there I did actually yeah I got I got uh, I got pushed into a bit of wrestling with the Mongolian truck drivers that were running our tour because I bought this hat that I didn't realize but is a wrestling hat and I was wearing this this funny hat around and um thought that was pretty cool and then the guys kept kind of like slapping me on the back and pushing me around and laughing and kind of <laughs> putting their arms in the air like an eagle which is the challenge of a wrestle did and you I didn't know, know I didn't know what they were and I'm like yeah cool you're an eagle I'm an eagle too and I'd put my hands in the air and I didn't know what we were doing <laughs> And then, and then eventually someone told me, he's like, he wants to challenge you to arrest, you have to wrestle him. I was like, all right. So we wrestled in the sand dunes, which was a safer place to do it than, than in the desert. And um, yeah, it was fun, actually. I, I lost the first bout pretty badly, but um, I did win on a technicality, the second one, because it, the way is, it works is like you have to touch a knee or an elbow to the ground. Your hands can touch the ground, but nothing else. And um, the guy kind of picked me up over his shoulder and was like walking around with me like, <laughs> I've, won the, I've won the battle, this is a joke, I, you know, but then I hadn't touched the <laughs> ground yet. So when he put me down, I, I very swiftly picked him up and dropped him, which was a cheeky move, but I, you know, they appreciated it. So nice. it, was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. So you're a Mongolian wrestling champ. Not That's something champ, we didn't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> I stand no chance. So you learned a little bit of Mongolian while you were there. Mm. Could you, I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but could you demo a little bit of what Mongolian sounds like? What was Borok Shinchte, your... that was my favorite. <laughs> Borok Shinchte means it's it's going to rain soon, maybe, um, which was my favorite. That was like, you know, that was always useful because yeah. people got to laugh out of that. Yeah, I learned the basics, you know, counting, hello, goodbye, thank you, my name is Mininer Dan and Chininer Kimber, what is your name? And Baitla, Baishte, sort of thank you, goodbye, so bits and pieces just to get me around yeah it sounds really interesting yeah it's a beautiful language yeah and did you did you learn from your friend what was his name again Bo Ga Gawa yeah, yeah. um yeah. Ganbold Lunda is his real name but Gawa is what everyone knows him as yeah yeah so we've got a track to take next and I think it's it's featuring him is this the is this the right track uh, no this features Giants? another Mongolian guy that I know uh -huh. Buku, who's a musician he does um traditional Mongolian throat singing and then plays the horse fiddle so, yeah, he's on Porcelain Giants, which is like the title track of the album that I released recently. Cool. And when you were in Mongolia, was it like a, was it also a spiritual thing or is that kind of separate? Um, yeah, I guess for me it was a little bit because I enjoyed um, kind of connecting to nature and in my own way. And yeah, I definitely tried to get a lot of time in 
meditating there's a kind of funny photo i posted of me like meditating in the desert which is like a bit of a joke silly photo because i'm dressed up as a mongolian and everything but i actually was meditating as often as i could just walking for an hour into the desert and sitting was was a really great space you don't get that kind of experience anywhere else i suppose the feeling of of being in the gobi and being so um isolated and landlocked is really unique so if you're walking an hour into the desert how long are you spending at a time kind of in this meditative state oh i might spend half an hour or or, yeah an hour or however long sometimes it might be 15 minutes however i feel i think there's no sort of expectation on what it's going to be is that something that you brought back to sydney with you i mean because i'm as an artist do you kind of combine spirituality with your art practice do you try to like meditate to get yourself in a certain zone Mm, not to get me in a certain zone but just to manage the sort of manicness of my mind I think and and the like the speed of my thoughts and the probably the coffee that I drink yeah I (laughs) I try to meditate as often as I can just to calm calm myself down and gain a little bit more focus yeah awesome now we got that track porcelain giants Buraku doing Mongolian horse fiddle also in this song my guest today is is Nielsen out of the box on FBI
Gorgeous track. Porcelain Giants. Can you hear the Mongolian horse fiddle? Spot that. Brought in by my guest today is, otherwise known as Daniel O'Toole. He's been DJing for the past, I guess, hour. Yeah. Wicked tracks, which you can all, uh, you can find all of them on the FBI Radio website on the programs and playlist page. We've listed them there, so if you'd like to find them, that's where you can go. And also the Free the Beats stuff. If you Google that, that phrase, you can pretty much find everything, and it's all free. That's right. So you've, you did a DJ set a while ago for uh, Ambush Gallery. There's a charity fundraiser coming up called Project 5. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on with this? Yeah, Project 5 um, yeah, it's a really great sort of event. I was involved way back. I think it might have been the second one that they did, and this is sort of number six, I think, volume six. It's like a month-long exhibition of four artists, a public sort of site-specific installation in Darling Harbour at uh, the Darling Quarter. So this one they had um, Askew, who's a really great artist from NZ, and then 23rd Keys, stencil artist from Melbourne. They had Alex Laws and Kyle Hughes-Odgers, who's um, also known as Creepy, from mm-hmm. um, Perth. So that was a, yeah, a really great little lineup, and they all do sort of live painting for the event, and I was like playing music for that event as well. And um, it runs for a month from the 19th to the 19th. So on the 19th of October is the auction and the, the proceeds go to, um, I think it's a different charity each year. And this year is like Arts Ready, which are a kind of an organisation that use, uh, that develop like traineeships to help underprivileged communities so they can um, gain like an access point into an artistic career and help um, develop some qualifications in a creative industry. So cool. yeah, it sounds like a really like relevant and um, great charity to me. So I was happy to be a part of it and... Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like a really good gig. Yeah. And so the the nineteenth of October is the auction then. That's right. Yeah, and there's I think there's a website. It's just projectfive.com.au if you want to look up the information on that. And Easy to remember. So yeah. the nineteenth, what day would that be? Is, is it the sixteenth today? I think it is. Oh, I don't know. Is that, does it make it Sunday? It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Oh my god. I know that feel. All right, it's been fantastic having you on Out of the Box today. Is Thank you so much for having me in. It's been heaps of fun. And if you want to listen back to the show, if you missed anything, you can always check us out on On Demand. That's what we do with every show on FBI. It all goes up straight up after the show. You can listen back to the past four episodes. Really great little service we offer. And we've got one last song before Beth comes and joins you for lunch. Tell us a bit about this Dan Friel fella. Yeah, this one's a little bit different to everything else we've been playing. It's pretty psychotic. Um, Dan Friel is a guy I discovered from Brooklyn who makes kind of uh, keyboard punk, like really gnarly, distorted kind of experimental punk stuff. I just really liked some of the ideas and textures and the types of distortion that he was using. I found them pretty interesting. Um, and he was able to push like push the envelope a little bit with how experimental it was while still having these like poppy kind of punk melodies going on so it was a cool contrast yeah keyboard punk is not something i've really heard of before so we'll see we'll see how this goes yeah it's intense (laughs) all right fantastic and fbi 94.5 thanks a bunch thank you
of the box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.